Buddhist Geeks Discover the Emerging Face of Buddhism. Episode 323 Bodhisattva Activist. In this episode, teachers Lama Willa Miller and David Loy conclude a Geeks of the Roundtable discussion on the intersection of Buddhism with ecological activism. This is part two of a two part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. David, I remember when we were uh, doing this short retreat on spiritual activism Mm -hmm. that one of the things you brought up, and I think it's relevant to to the point you're making, Willa, is... Um, maybe there's a tendency for those of us who are drawn to contemplation and to, you know, kind of noticing our inner experience and working with it. Um, maybe there's a tendency for us to be as a whole kind of conflict averse, you know, like we're, we're trying to manifest this loving, compassionate, you know, uh, all of this. And, you know, sometimes that's really beautiful and it's awesome. And sometimes it ends up being a kind of, um, you know, kind of we're, we're actually kind of trying to avoid situations where the parts of us that haven't been transformed get activated. And, you know, Mm -hmm. and when we talk about the ecological crisis and we have different perspectives on it, you know, you know, and David and I, we've had many debates and conversations about, uh, about these things and we don't agree on, on all these issues at all, but you know, and when it happens, there is conflict, there is tension, there is anger, there is confusion, there is fear you know, all of those things come up and, and I, and I know that, you know, the Buddhist tradition has many ways of working with them, but I also know that in my own experience that sometimes the way of working with them is like you're saying, David, to, to kind of like notice them and let them dissolve. And then nothing necessarily doesn't necessarily come out of that kind of approach to it. So, you know, that, that seems a little bit problematic in terms of the, the interface between these two. Mm-hmm. Uh, that. I think that's exactly right in the sense that, um, uh, and and I think it pertains a lot to the way that socially engaged Buddhism has developed in this country. Uh, social engagement in the sense of service, I think, is now largely accepted in in the sense that um, many Buddhist practitioners accept how important it is to get involved with, you know, helping people, maybe helping homeless or working in hospices, working in, in prisons, things like that. But when it comes to larger issues uh, of, of sort of structural ones that might involve some kind of conflict or dealing with big, big oil, for example, then Buddhists feel a lot more uncomfortable. The analogy that I've sometimes used is that I think we've, as you know, Buddhist practitioners, we've become better at fishing people out of the water, out of the river, drowning people, but uh, we're not very good at, at, at dealing or asking the question, well, why are there so many more drowning people? Who or what is pushing them in the river upstream? You know, I was recently reminded uh, of, uh, of that famous line by uh, Dom Camara, um, this uh, Brazilian archbishop who said something like, uh, when I give food to the poor, they call me a saint. When I ask why there are so many poor, they call me uh, uh, a communist. I, I wonder if there's a Buddhist equivalent. When I, uh, when Buddhists give, when Buddhists help homeless people, they are called bodhisattvas. 
But when we ask why are there so many more homeless people in the richest country in the history of the earth, we're called leftist or something. You know, we're kind of dismissed. People don't want to address it. Sorry, I think I'm talking too long here. But no. the other thing that, that, that really comes up for me, and I think this is Bill McKibben who said it, that um, um, if 10% of the people in this country did everything they could to reduce their carbon footprint, you know, probably sold their cars, put in solar panels, lived off the grid and so forth. Even if 10% did that, it would make virtually no difference whatsoever as far as what's happening with the carbon issue. But if something like 7 or 7.5% of people became socially active and did everything they could, demanded that we have the kinds of political changes that are necessary, then we could resolve the problem. So this is a real koan this is a case where personal transformation, reducing our own footprint, our own carbon footprint is really important. It's where we start. But we have to find ways to understand and address larger structural issues, such as the role of big oil, which is determined to, you know, get as much oil out of the ground and sell it as quickly as they can before the changes that they know have to come, you know, are, are going to come. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I also I also think that we could make an argument that um, being socially and politically active as a Buddhist is as old as the Buddha, because the Buddha himself was a social activist, was a political activist in his way. He was so. a critic of the caste system. Right. And, and to be a critic of the caste system in India at that time can't have been all roses. I mean, I just feel you look at his, his um, the sutras and the Pali Canon, and, and there's quite a bit of criticism of the caste system there, social criticism. So I think if we really look back at Buddhist history, too, there's many templates and examples that we have of being socially active and, and even politically active when the stakes are as high as, as they are. In the, Buddha, in the Buddhist time, the high stakes were the caste system and equality was, his, his struggle for equality was around that issue. In our time, I think that climate change may well be the most critical ethical issue of our time. Mm-hmm. So to address it would be a, a natural response uh, for Buddhists to make, not, not something that is somehow new to get off our cushion in this way. Mm. And, and I have a question, a kind of follow-up on that, Willa, for you, because, um, you know, if we acknowledge, you know, in this confluence of, of the modern world and, 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 and this ancient sort of set of practices and injunctions that Buddhism offers, if we sort of acknowledge that this is like one of the most, if not the most critical ethical issue that we face, you know, how does that change how we practice or how we teach Buddhism? You know, is, does it actually require that we redesign or re-engineer the path itself in order to, you know, give us the capacities and the skills and the tools needed to, to respond to very unique challenges that, you know, it's not the caste system per se that we're dealing with. It's, you know, it's sort of eco, you know, system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. kind of spiraling out of control. Well, I, I do think that we have a moral obligation as individuals in the Buddhist community to hold the earth in our meditations. Um, so in that way, adapt our meditations to include 
um, a wider sense of what all sentient beings means, um, not just all species and all creatures, wherever they are, whoever they are, but the home of all those creatures and, and how they're all connected to each other an even broader and deeper sense of the interdependence of all things. I think now that we know what we know about how our actions have changed the earth and are changing the earth, we can't turn away from that knowledge as, as individual Buddhists. So in our practice, I think we have to bring it into our practice. And I do think we have a moral obligation to do that. I also think that leaders in the Buddhist community I mean, I, I don't, I can't speak for everyone, but I think there is, I think that our Buddhist communities would be enhanced if leaders brought this issue into their teaching in various ways. So to give an example of something that, that I did recently, I, 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 I changed the sense of the, the four immeasurables or I played with the wording in the four immeasurables um, in a teaching in which it, may the earth have wellness and the causes of wellness, may the, may the earth be few, free of pollution and the causes of pollution. Mm. Um, may we treat every ecosystem with equanimity and may we rejoice in um, the actions that we see taken by others and by ourselves that help bring the earth to wellness. So these are, this is an adaptation of the four immeasurables. So mm -hmm. just in ways like that, Buddhist teachers can start to turn the minds of their sanghas a little bit more towards, um, towards changing inner individual actions. And that always progresses to things like how we vote, um, what kinds of, um, demonstrations we go to, <laughs> what kinds of petitions we sign, every little action we can take makes a difference. You know, I do think that's another thing that Buddhism brings to the table. This idea of interdependence means that we don't have to despair, that we are powerless. Everything we do makes a difference. Every little thing makes a difference. There's an important sense in which I think the ecological crisis challenges Buddhism to clarify a kind of crucial ambiguity that I see being there from sort of the very beginning. Uh, I mean, I think this whole question of, uh, of how do we understand awakening, certainly the way the Theravada tradition understood it and, and developed it, uh, and, and, and not just Theravada, but the notion that this world is samsara, and the idea is not to fix, a, fix samsara or clean it up, but rather to escape from it, right? So the ultimate goal is not to be reborn. Now, by the way, I'm not sure how much that's. I'm not sure how much that was the Buddha's original emphasis or the way that the tradition developed. But uh, let's leave that to the side. Um, so, on the one hand, if that's your understanding, it does encourage us to sort of not be so concerned about what's going on here, because our ultimate goal is to check out. And maybe it's nice if other people will escape from this world as well. Nonetheless, you know, my own individual salvation ultimately become separated from yours. So, so, so that's an issue that I think inevitably traditions, this understanding of transcendence tends to devalue this world to some degree. And, and, and I think that's, that's, part of the, the, that's part of the tradition. Likewise, I think largely or at least partly in response to that, 
I, I think a lot of the way that Buddhism is being appropriated into the modern world is the emphasis sort of a kind of therapy that helps us work with difficult emotions and sort of helps us fit into the world better. You know, so I'm, I'm thinking of how it's, it's quite fascinating, whereas the Asian Buddhist traditions really weren't all that interested in our emotional life, frankly. And yet that's become a major preoccupation, I think, in, 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 the, in the West. And, and it's very much the sense of our lives are very stressful and something like mindfulness can help us um, uh, harmonize, fit in and, and, and make our peace of mind. And I guess I see both of these as problematic in that they tend to both extremes, whether we want to escape this world or whether we just want to fit into it better and, and sort of change the way our minds function so that we're more at, at peace with our jobs and family life and so forth. Both of those tend to overlook or minimize what I think are these larger questions. I mean, I don't see the Buddhist path as being either one of those. I'd be, I see the Buddhist path as being about realizing that we experience the world in the way that we do, and we experience, and that includes experiencing ourselves in the way that we do, because uh, we've constructed the world in a certain kind of way. And so the Buddhist path is a kind of deconstructing with meditation, deconstructing how we experience ourselves. And this works not only on the individual personal level of how we understand what it means to be an individual, what it means to be a person, but also collectively we need to look at the kind of restructuring that's necessary socially, politically, collectively as well. And, and so I see those deconstructions and reconstructions as, as two sides of the same thing, both the need for this Buddhist practice, contemplative practice works on reconstructing how we experience this world and likewise the traditional more western concern for social justice is is traditionally more concerned about restructuring how we live together and i just see those as as two sides of the of the same thing and i just wonder if 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 the eco crisis in particular really requires us to ask this question how do we understand the relationship between our Buddhist practice and this world that we are in. Is it, is it escaping it? Is it fitting into it or what? And I think that's just one of those unavoidable issues that comes to the forefront. Mm. Right. I found that David, the um, doctrine of the, of the Bodhisattva who wants to come back again and again to be very helpful um, and very harmonious with the, with the perspective of, not letting the earth die because we want to come back again and again and keep helping it. You know, <laughs> and so right, right. I found that to be a helpful uh, hermeneutic uh, for for sort of harmonious with this with this idea of enlightenment as not as a goal but as a process mm. and a long, long process. So. And the process-oriented mind, um, process-oriented view of the path maybe is is one that could could help with that and i also um am thinking about these practices of you know I, so when you were saying escaping the world and getting away from suffering i think there of course is a, a great deal of doctrine about that but there's also a whole tradition uh in in lochong for example lochong being these uh heart cultivation teachings out of the tibetan tradition 
in which your whole goal is to lean into what's difficult and lean into suffering and be even even come close as close as you possibly can to it because it is the door to love and compassion so you don't want to discard it you mm. don't even want to cleanse it you mm. want to be near it and allow it to feed your heart so that you become more compassionate so then suffering is not to be discarded from that perspective but i hear you <laughs> well like, like you i'm fascinated by this by this notion of the new bodhisattva mm. uh Although I'm a little bit wary about the old way of conceptualizing or mythologizing it, you know, the notion that the bodhisattva out of compassion could sort of avoid rebirth, but chooses to come back and to help the rest of us. In a way, it's like, I, I guess what the way I tend to think of it is as we begin to awaken and realize uh, as we open up you know, beyond the, the usual ego bounds, the sense that my well-being can be separated from everyone else. We really realize that uh, the practice, the practice, like the next stage of practice as we do that in, inevitably involves what you might call bodhisattva activity because the, the old tendencies, the old self-centered, self-preoccupied habits of mind, uh, they don't just disappear automatically because you have some opening or some moment of insight. So how does one trans begin to transform one's life? And I think that's where the bodhisattva path comes in as far as, you know, we, we have to change our fundamental motivations and ask instead of what can I get out of the situation? We're asking, what can I do to make this better? I mean, in a way, this fits in with this quotation that I probably quote too often from these Argadada, but I love it, Right. When I uh, look inside and see that I am nothing, that's wisdom. Mm. When I look outside and see that I'm everything, that's love. So my understanding of awakening is this, this sense of separation just becomes thinner and thinner. And we, we realize that, you know, as Dogen might say, all of this is my own mind. This is what I am. And the Bodhisattva path is learning to live in a way that acknowledges and, and, and works for the well-being of the whole because the Bodhisattva ultimately doesn't feel separate from the whole. Mm -hmm. but, that's a, but that's somewhat different than the old way of conceptualizing, you know, the ultimate goal is to escape. No, for, you know, certainly for me, the ultimate goal isn't to escape. It's, it's the opposite. It's, it's the sense of separation that's the problem. And it's more and more wanting to, to feel that, uh, more and more wanting to live in a way where, you know, I'm I'm fully engaged because it's all me because it's not it's well-being isn't separate from me. Mm. I'm not saying that very well, but uh, I think I you think said it beautifully. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I feel like too before we as I mean this is this is I think we've covered some I mean a tremendous amount of uh, ground already, but I, I feel like because this is Buddhist geeks, I, I I feel like I need to kind of make a plug too for um for for the wise use of technology in this endeavor. Um, you know, I know part of this conversation, and I think, and this is some of what Dave and I have discussed in the past, like when we talk about, you know, consumerism and corporate culture, and, you know, we, we sort of start looking at some of the roots of the problem, um, you know, that's brought us to this point, you know, um, and really the ecology started changing, you know, well before we knew it was changing, we were already shaping it, you know, when we were lighting fires and, you know, doing, you know, bringing domestic animals together, we were already shaping it. Um, and now it's even more dramatic, but, you know, I, I've been really inspired by things like the bright green movement, you know, this, this movement of environmentalists who really embrace technology's capacity to, 
um, to respond to these issues or using it as part of the response and maybe even a necessary part. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've also been really inspired in the in the in the business sector by things like the like the benefit corporation movement, you know, where people are building into their charters um, and they can actually get sued if they're not delivering on certain social benefits and environmental ones being, you know, part of that. Um, and I, I just want to make sure, you know, kind of being a bright green, um, you know, business. I, I love I love business and what it's capable of as a system, you know, when it's not um, just being kind of used to grow no matter what and at, at whatever cost. Um, but but actually, you know, to to look at the ways we can utilize those systems as well, even though they've been part of the problem, they can also and probably need to be part of the solution. Um, yes, indeed. Anyway, just just wanted to throw that out there for all the all the geeks that are. <laughs> well, for the for the, any of the geeks that aren't able to attend the Ecodharma conference in August, we are going to stream it live Ooh, from nice. Mountain Refuge, streaming live using technology to bring people closer to this Great. conversation, bring people together. I think it's it's a wonderful. Um, we have wonderful opportunities now that we can do these kinds of things. It's amazing. I think you're exactly right, Vince. That uh, you know, we definitely need new technologies. There's no questions about that. And and it's also fascinating. It's it's really such early days for the internet and all that. And I don't know that any of us have even the Google guys have any real sense of, of, of the potential here and the potential for all kinds of transformations, uh, including spiritual ones. Uh, it, it, it's one of the great, uh, it, it's one of the great openings. You know, when you look historically at how technologies have changed things, you know, it was, it was print that created the axial age religions. It was, sorry, it wasn't print, it was script. And then it was actually print that was very much connected with the development of modernity, Gutenberg and all that. And I think the transformation that uh, the internet and these new digital communications, um, it, it's, it's gonna be just as great. And, and, and it's, it, it's really fascinating. At the same time, I guess the other, the other concern I have is if we simply see the solution as the as the discovery and application of new technologies, right. will that be sufficient to address what I see as the collective version of the individual problem? This, you know, if the individual dukkha suffering is 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 deeply connected with the sense of separate self, that that I'm separate from you, it it, it does seem to me too that what we're experiencing now is a collective version of the same thing where we as a species feel separate from the earth. So in addition to new technologies, we need new ways of reconnecting with the natural world and feeling that we're not separate from it. I I just think that both of those are are going to be necessary. Yeah, that's huge. And, you know, I was going to say the, the separation that I've seen dwindle as I go more into the technology space is the separation between me and technology. You know, mm-hmm. it's becoming easier and easier to create new forms of technology and they are an extension of our motivations and our intentions. Um, the way we design them and the way we use them reflects that so clearly. And just like we're not separate from the natural world, we're not separate from the technologies that humans create, which are part of humanity, which is part of the natural world. <laughs> You know, so it's in some ways there, it's like no separations in all directions seems to be in some ways the like part of how we have to respond to this issue. I think my just th- thoughts on technology are 
that it's an amazing tool, especially for, for communication um, and a communication across distance, just like we're doing right now. I mean, amazing that we're all having this conversation about such, mm. such meaningful topics and we're not anywhere near each other. That's incredible. I also sometimes uh, worry about the dangers of technology um, with regard to the mind and attention and where attention is directed and how much is it taking us out of the real world? How much is it taking us away from nature? So I was, I was, you know, saying earlier that I, I was talking to a climate scientist who said she'd read a study in which they found that most people spend less than one hour a day outdoors. And, and that to me is, is, is concerning because I think as a society, we are suffering from nature uh, deficit disorder <laughs> that we could really do would do well to spend more time in communing with nature so that we really see these ecosystems as they're changing and care more deeply about acting on their behalf. Mm. That's not, that's not a, uh, a, I'm not uh, dismissing technology, but more saying that uh, I always think of it as something to be indulged in moderation. <laughs> Yeah, and I think, you know, and this is something we've explored uh, ad nauseum on Buddhist Geeks is, you know, the mm. the difference between criticizing technology as a whole and criticizing the way it's designed and the way it's utilized. Um, because there are some beautiful technologies that can be used to, to aid that very communing process. Mm. You know, my, my sense is that uh, from a Buddhist perspective, maybe this isn't the only Buddhist perspective, but that... Technologies aren't good in themselves or bad in themselves, but it all depends on on context and intention. That 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 you can't really take, you can't say this technology is is inherently bad or good. What's what's the motivation behind it? I mean, I mean, it's not so simple, but but I think that's a really important issue from a Buddhist perspective. Is one of the main questions we always need to ask is you know what what's the motivation, whether individual or collective. I mean, we also need to look at likely consequences, but I think that's what's really interesting about Buddhism is that it's, it, it, it's emphasizing so much our motivations. Nice. Okay, cool. This is interesting. Maybe this feels like a whole nother conversation. So I want to, I want to, <laughs> you know, I don't want to, I don't want to um, go, go beyond our time, which we've already, which we've already uh, you know, reached, but just to thank you for, um, yeah, your time and reflections and, and thoughts on this and definitely would encourage anyone who's interested in uh, continuing this conversation or seeing where it goes, you know, to either um, go to Wonderwell and, and join David and Willa or to, you know, watch the live stream and, you know, uh, and I'll definitely be following this uh, with rapt attention and, and be curious to see how it develops over the, the next few years. Thank you for this invitation, Vince. It's, it's been a pleasure talking with both of you. Yeah, thank you so much, Vince and Dave, for being in conversation. This is wonderful. Thanks for having us on Buddhist Geeks. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, 
self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com slash conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.